Hello, and welcome to the Orthodox West Gazette, a miscellany of talks, interviews, ponderings, and presentations. I'm Stephen Brannan, and today I talk with Father Patrick Cardine of St. Patrick Orthodox Church in Bealdton, Virginia, about the nature of the pre-Lenten season in the Western tradition. And you get to learn how to say 70th, 60th, and 50th in Latin, which then you can use to impress your friends. So stay tuned and enjoy. Well, thank you again, Father Patrick, for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoy talking with you. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to get you know, a chance to talk with you before we turn this corner in our calendar, because we're about to start, as you know, the, the journey to Pascha. And uh, liturgically, spiritually, pastorally, you know, you've been through this, you have experience on, on what it all looks like and what it means. So I just wanted to get your, uh, your feel for, you know, what, what we're about to enter into in the, in the season of the church. Sure. Um, well, it's absolutely my delight to, uh, to be, be with you again and have this conversation. We are about to enter into sort of our, our pre-race warm-up exercises, uh, so to speak. So we're, this Sunday begins uh, a little mini um, season, liturgical season of the church year, uh, which is basically a pre-Lenten season, and it consists of three Sundays and lasts about two and a half weeks. So you have the first Sunday, this coming Sunday, um, and then a week, and then the Sunday, and then a week, and then Monday and Tuesday, and we, we refer to this um, as Septuagesima Tide. And this is, it's kind of a little pre-Lent, it's a, it's a way to ease into Lent and get ourselves ready for the more rigorous um, penitential um, season uh, of Lent. So while Lent is a preparation for Pascha, Septuagesima is a preparation um, for Lent. So and this, is, the, this is the same thing, the Eastern Rite has uh, also pre-Lenten uh, season, several exactly. Sundays yes. before Lent starts um, officially. And so this is um, the same? It's, it's very similar. They have meat fair, cheese fair, and this, um, this tradition of this pre-Lenten season was adopted in the West from the East. So it began in the East, and the West adopted it from the East in um, probably the early 6th century, maybe a little bit earlier. Okay. Um, but you know, and we'll, I'll, we'll discuss that in a few minutes, but before we actually get into some of the details of, of the season itself, I'd like to just talk about the idea of preparation hmm. because as we, as we go into Septuagesima, maybe, maybe better than any other little season in the church year, this gives us an opportunity to think about the idea of, of, of preparing ourselves for something that's yet to come. Right. And, and one of the things, one of the things that becomes clear if you really orient your life around the liturgical calendar, if you pay attention to the liturgical seasons, the themes of the liturgical year, you realize something dawns on you after a few years of this, that you're always preparing for something. You're uh -huh. always in a mode of preparation. You're always looking forward to what is to come. And you realize that in this life, we're really in a state of, of living in hope and expectation of what shall come. And if you think about the church year, for example, Advent is a preparation for Christmas, Ascension Tide, a preparation for Pentecost, Lent, a preparation for, you know, the greatest feast of the year, Pascha, Easter, and Septuagesima Tide is a preparation for Lent, um, ultimately for Easter and Pascha. So the idea is through this little 
two and a half week, three Sunday season, um, we're easing ourselves into uh, the more intense penitential season of Lent. So we're basically preparing to prepare. <laughs> so that's why this is sort of the quintessential preparation season, because we're preparing to prepare. Okay, um, yeah. One, you know, one of my kids, when they were young, we realized they had a hard time quickly adjusting to information, you know, that was thrown at them. Hmm. So we learned that it was very helpful for us to forewarn her that there was a change coming. So, you know, maybe five or ten minute announcement, like, in ten minutes, you're going to need to be wrapping up what you're doing because it's going to be, you're going to need to get ready for bed. So uh -huh. that little prepar the little preparation, um, instead of saying, stop what you're doing and go get ready for bed, made a huge difference in her ability to adjust to the change that was coming. She needed to get ready to get ready for bed, um, if that makes sense. And that's yeah. sort of like what Septuagesima is like. You know, Lent's pretty rigorous. The fast is rigorous. We have daily services. We, we increase everything, all of our spiritual disciplines. And we need to even emotionally, psychologically, spiritually sort of prepare ourselves to enter into the rigors of Lent. And that's what Septuagesima is all about. Interesting. Um, so it's really about, about preparing ourselves. And we begin to understand that this whole life really is about preparing ourselves for eternity. Yeah. I mean, in, fa in fact, you know, we have not finished our race. We've not reached the other side. We haven't right. been perfected yet. Um, you know, the consummation of our development as human beings is, is we've not reached the summit. Um, we've not come to our telos uh, for which we've been created. So we, we, we're still on the way. We're still, as Paul says, um, straining to finish the race well. We're still striving to enter the eternal rest that awaits us. So that's, that is the condition of our life in this mortal flesh. We might say, well, didn't Jesus you know, promised that if we believe in him, our cup would overflow and rivers of living water would flow out of us and we would find rest for our souls. We'd be comforted. We'd be at peace. We'd be satiated. I did, he did promise these things here, but it's all true. Um, we've discovered, you know, the meaning of life in Christ. We've tasted the heavenly mysteries. We've been, you know, born from above and united to God, um, filled with all these wonderful, you know, delights of the kingdom. Mm. It's all true. But all this other stuff I said is true, too, all at the same time. Right, you know, yeah. It's, it's finished. There's definitely an but already but not yet character exactly. to, to this exactly. embodied life it's, currently. I mean, we see through a glass darkly, you know. That's, um, yeah. there's, I think there's uh, a tension that we see all throughout the New Testament uh, that, that you're, you're talking about, where there is a fulfillment. There is, the telos is, in a sense, already graspable, but not in its entirety, uh, which exactly. is a, a lot of sort of what our, our spirituality and the liturgy deals with, uh, sort of the, we're foretasting the, the great wedding feast, but we're not standing in it fully yet. Yeah. It's just the well, character. This, this whole, this whole, yeah, and that's this whole life. We have right. to understand this entire life. And I'm going somewhere with this because Septuagesimatide, even in the name um, there's a hidden mystery about meaning in, in the very name. But we, this entire life that we live in the flesh is basically we are passing through a, a, a corridor of, of paradox. Uh, we're, mm. we're wrestling with a tension of polarity, you know, where we've tasted the heavenly bread and received the spirit, but we're not yet perfected. 
we, the spirit is only a deposit of our inheritance. It's mm. assured, but not consummated, not until the final resurrection. And so, Corridor of paradox. You know, I like that. That's, that's our condition. And, and, you know, I think pastorally, I would say that one of the greatest problems that people face, Christians face, is, is making peace with this condition. Like, we don't, we don't want to accept this. Mm. <laughs> you know, we, re- we resist it. We, th- we think, we, and we can tend to get resentful about it. Like, why do I have to endure this condition of the mortal flesh in this life? And, you know, if we, if we get resentful of this, if we can't accept this as, as a gift from God to bring us to salvation, the means by which we will find salvation, it, we're going to be led down a path into all kinds of pain and trouble for ourselves. Um, but the point in saying all of this, especially with our topic today, is that if we let the rhythm of the liturgical cycle of the year, by going to the services, paying attention to, to the, the services and the prayers and all of this, if we let this form and shape us, if we submit ourselves to it, you know, and follow it with some intentionality and discipline, then we are going to pass through this polarity, this corridor of paradox with flying colors. Because the liturgy helps us to make it through, um, you know, th- this life, this difficulty, through the seasons, the feasts, the fasts, the ceremonies, the rites. All of it are a tool, an instrument to shape us and bring us into an encounter, you know, with Christ. Mm. Um, so now the thing we need to remember is the liturgical, you know, rites and ceremonies are not the goal in and of themselves. Right. But they bring us they bring us to the goal, which is Christ himself. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, while we say that the liturgical rites and ceremonies are not the goal, I don't really think they can be completely parsed out from our experience of Christ. They they sort of meld together in a way in our actual experience, because we experience Christ in and through the liturgical life, the prayers Absolutely. of the church. Yeah. So it's like saying, you you know, you you can't uh, parse out your relationship with your wife except through the way you interact at you know breakfast and lunch and dinner and your daily interaction and and life. You're we're all embodied and we experience, uh, you know, our relationships, our our experience of love has to do with the way we actually do it. So yeah, the Mm -hmm. liturgy is extremely important. Yeah. In our relationship you know, with Christ. I mean, we, we, you know, Christ is human and divine, and, and he, he and his whole person, we worship, worship the whole Christ, human and divine. Um, and, and, and also we experience, you know, mystically experience the presence of Christ, but we also experience him through the enfleshed liturgical life, the concrete, the tangible, the incarnational aspect of our prayer. He's in and through it all, so... Yes. But, you know, back to the um, specific topic of this season of Septuagesimatide, um, this Sunday, this upcoming Sunday for us, Septuagesima Sunday, it's the ninth Sunday before Easter, okay. and it is the, thir- the third Sunday before Ash Wednesday. And Ash okay. Wednesday for us is the official start of Lent in the Western Rite. Um, so we've been talking about this life as a, as a preparation. Um, interestingly, the name of this pre-Lenten season, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Septuagesima, the very name here is a symbol 
of life as preparation for eternity. And, and it's sort of a, a, a mysterious symbol at first until you know what Septuagesima means. So we know numbers are very important as symbols in our religion. And Septuagesima comes from the Latin uh, for 70th. Okay. So for 70, 70th. That's what the word means. Septuagesima means the 70th. 70th. Um, and this, you're right. And so this is an important symbol. The, the number 70 is actually an incredibly important scriptural symbol for this life in the flesh as a time of preparation. Okay. And where does, um, sorry, just to be clear, where does the Sunday get its name, 70th? Why is it named well, that? Well, <laughs> I am headed there in just one moment. So that's, <laughs> okay. that's right where I'm going. Good. Um, so before, before I sort of, before I want to talk about where the number 70 is a symbol for our life in this flesh, um, let's go ahead and address that. So that's a good question. Why, where the Sunday got this uh, name 70th in the first place? Um, so let's back up. The season of Lent is 40 days, right? So everybody's mm -hmm. pretty familiar with that. And 40 days, 40 years are very important symbolic time periods um, in the scriptures for preparation, penance, cleansing. Um, we see it in many different, different places in the scriptures. If we count back from Pascha, from Easter to Ash Wednesday, which is the official start of the Western Rite Lent, we end up with not 40 days, so this is a little confusing at first, but we end up with 46 days. And the reason we have 46 days and not 40 is because the six Sundays during the Lenten season are excluded and not considered a part of Lent. So once you exclude those six Sundays from the 46, you end up with 40 days exactly from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. And so okay? they're excluded because there is no fasting on Sundays in the there, Western tradition. That's, that's correct. So it's okay. a day of the resurrection, and we don't fast on Sundays in the Western tradition. So that's why they're So there excluded. are exactly 40 days of fasting from Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday. That's correct. Okay, yep. So, so Ash Wednesday um, and Lent in general, but Ash Wednesday in spe specifically and Lent in general is known as quadragesima, meaning in Latin, the 40th. Okay, so uh, Ash Wednesday is known as quadragesima, the 40th. And if we work back from quadragesima, beginning on Ash Wednesday, the three Sundays before Lent are named by the decade that they fall in. Okay. Okay, so stick with me for a minute, and hopefully this will make sense. Now, we know decade 10, there are not 10 days in a week. There's only seven days prior to each and so their names do not perfectly correspond mathematically to um, the number of days that they are before Easter, but they're basically rounded off. Okay. So let me, so let me kind of recap this. Ash Wednesday, quadragesima, falls 40 days before Easter. The Sunday before Ash Wednesday is called quinquagesima, and okay. that means 50th. It falls, right. within the, it falls within the fifth decade before Easter. So it's the Sunday um, closest to 50 days before Easter. That's correct. Okay. Then the next, sun, the next Sunday, two Sundays removed from Ash Wednesday, we got um, sexagesima, which means 60th, and that okay. falls Sunday within closest. the sixth, right? Yep. Closest okay. to 60 days. And then if you back up one more Sunday, three Sundays before Ash Wednesday, you get septuagesima, which is in the seventh decade before Easter. Right. So that's basically how the Sundays got their names. 
Gotcha. That's, I'm tracking. That's how they got their name. So basically, this little two and a half week pre Lent season is named for the Sunday, which begins it, which is Septuagesima. All right. Okay. So we're, does that seem to make pretty good sense? Yep. Okay, good. So let's get back now to this observation that Septuagesima, meaning 70th, is not only a season of preparation, but its very name, 70th, has particular significance symbolically for our life in the flesh on this side of eternity as a preparation um, for eternity, but, but not just a preparation, and now I'm going to give it away, not just a preparation, but specifically as a time of captivity. Okay, mm. so I think I gave it away there. <laughs> um, that reference... We're talking um, about captive. Babylon now, right? Egg, exactly. You got okay. it. So we're, we're, we're connecting 70 with, with the captivity of Babylon, 70 years in Babylon. And just like the Jews who were carried off from Jerusalem and held in captivity in Babylon, we also in this life of suffering, we are in exile from our heavenly home. We're waiting for the city which is coming down from above. So... Septuagesima side, tied, it, it stands for something bigger. It's bigger than just this two-and-a-half-week season on our liturgical calendar, which comes round each year. This little season really represents our entire life in this world, in this mortal, corrupt flesh. We are, all of us, in this life, basically 70 years in Babylon. And the church has always taught this, that we are to see really the Old Testament experience of the Jews in Babylon as a symbol and a type of our life in the mortal flesh. Hmm. Um, now, there's another interesting um, correspondence here to the number 70 and the mortal life in the flesh, and this one is made by the psalmist. And it's a, it's a, it's a passage that many people might be familiar with. The psalmist says, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. Okay, three score years and ten, that's seventy. Hmm. And okay. if by reason and if by reason of strength they be four score years. So basically he's referring to the typical mortal life is seventy years. And if you're lucky and strong, perhaps you might get eighty years. Okay? So he goes on. He says, um, <clears throat> let me just read that again. The days of our years are three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four score years, yet is their strength, but labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So this mortal life symbolized by the number 70, according to the psalmist, is typified by what? Labor and sorrow. And then he says, this is great. He says, well, if you're lucky, you get an extra 10 years. Well, 10 more, <laughs> of 10 more, more labor years and of sorrow. labor and sorrow. Right, exactly. <laughs> So, um, thanks. That's great. So, um, so basically, you know, the psalmist is saying this 70-year life, just like the 70-year captivity in Babylon, is basically full of grief and sorrow. And um, every year in Septuagesima Tide, we're reminded that this life is a preparation in which we will always feel, you know, that hunger pain, that chill, because we're not yet perfected, and we are still preparing for the final day, the consummation of our salvation. So as we enter this season and embrace Septuagesima, 
Um, we embrace Lent and we embrace the life that we've been given in hope. You know, it's, it's a hope, it's an anticipation. And we accept the difficulties of this life as God has given them to us as a means for our salvation. salvation. And, and as we do this, what's so important is we're reminded that the, the kingdom is not of this world. You know, the, the new Jerusalem is not of this world. It's coming down from heaven. Hmm. And I tell my parishioners all the time, this world is Babylon, and it is passing away. This world is not your friend. If you ever talk to any of my parishioners, that's one of, something I tell them all the time. Do yeah. not forget, this world is not your friend. This world hmm. is not your friend. I think one of the most serious problems that face Christians today is that we simply have become too worldly. We look to the world to, to satiate our needs. We even look to people in the world or of the world to entrust ourselves to. And the world is not our friend. And Jesus told us, in this world, you will have trouble, grief, sorrow, and labor, right? So, you know, we, we say vesting prayers um, in the sacristy as we're putting our vestments on. And there's a little cloth the priest wears over his left forearm called a maniple. Mm-hmm. And when he, puts, when he puts the maniple on, he says this prayer. He says, grant me, O Lord, to bear the light burden of grief and sorrow that I may with gladness take the reward of my labor. And, you know, I don't just rush through this prayer, though I say it all the time. Every time I say this prayer, I really say it with sincerity because the priesthood, like all of our life, it really is filled with grief and sorrow. I mean, there are the constant struggles and sins. I mean, the pain that you feel for your parishioners who are, are wrestling um, and, and really just the repetitive bad choices we all make, which bring unnecessary pain to our lives. I mean, it, it really does, you know, grieve us, you know, in, in a deep way. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think that, I think we have to face the reality of this square on with courage, right? Um, no, so this no isn't dis- a defeatist attitude. We're not sulking or just trying to be stoic about it, accepting it and, and saying there's nothing to be done. The best way to handle it is just to realize it's the case and and try to not be emotional about it. This is this is a different message. The, the point of remembering all of the pain and struggle, the point of remembering the Lord's words about what this life in the flesh will entail um, is is to remember that it's not the final way of things, that it will be made better and redeemed. Is that the attitude that, I, that we're to adopt? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we're, de- we're, dealing, we're dealing with reality, just as you said. You know, I mean, we're, we're realists, and um, we're not afraid of reality because Christ is risen. <laughs> so we have, we have hope, we have courage. Um, and what I'm trying to say about these things, about you know, reckoning with this life, it, it shouldn't depress us. If it's depressing us, it's probably because we're not embracing this life as a preparation for the next, as a gift from God to help us, you know, to, to spend it wisely, circumspectly, soberly. If, if we do, if we embrace it as a gift and with courage and with faith, 
then there's a stream of life, of beauty, of joy that flows through our souls uh, in the difficulties of this life. It gives us strength and endurance um, while we're dealing with the sorrow in this world. And, I mean, this is the paradox uh, of being a Christian that the world can't understand. I mean, you know, it always amazes me how many Christians are shocked when they encounter grief and sorrow in this life. Um, as if, you know, they just, they're, they're flabbergasted by it. Like, I didn't know I signed up for this. And I think, you know, Jesus promised you that this is what you're going to deal with. Um, mm. I think one of the great, as you know, hearing people's confessions, pastoring people, one of the greatest dangers, I think, an otherwise devout Christian faces is, is developing resentment at the difficulties of this life, even the difficulties with their own personal sin. Right. This resentment, if it, if it turns into a habit of mind, it, it produces all kinds of evil. It will erode your faith. It will steal your courage. It will take away your perseverance in the fight. Um, it will eventually blind a person to God's love and power. And, and it'll, it'll bring you to, to a place of despair in the end. I, I think, you know, if you did an experiment, if you interviewed 100, and there's plenty of these around, so it, this wouldn't be hard to do. If you interviewed 100 former Christian believers who are now maybe agnostic or atheist, I think you'd find that the majority of them slipped into this condition because basically God would not satisfy their demands for an answer to the problem of suffering and grief and pain in this life. Hmm. You know, they, they want to answer to this. They demand it of God. You know, they put him in the, you know, in the, in the seat. In the dock. Like they're the prosecutor. Like said. Yeah, yeah, in the dock. And, and demand an answer, and they don't get it. And so, you know, they, they end up just losing all courage and hope and faith. And um, I don't want to leave this discussion, you know, in a place of, of despair and sorrow, because this life is not just pain and suffering. There is deep and meaningful comfort in this life. There's sweetness that comes to us that's much sweeter than the bitterness, quite frankly. I mean, even, and this is the miracle, this is the miracle of the resurrection at work in our lives. Even the sorrow that we endure becomes sweet to us when we encounter Christ in and through the sorrow. He transforms, you know, death into life. He transforms the bitterness into sweetness. Mm. This is, you know, this sort of just baffles me to contemplate this. And if I'm feeling like sort of going through suffering is, is, is mutually exclusive to experiencing light and joy, I just think about God himself, whose joy is not diminished um, or eclipsed by the pain of our sin. And I can't explain that, but I know it's true. We know that it's true, and we experience it in our own lives, and we see it in the lives of the saints. Okay, so we had a little bit of uh, technical difficulty, and we we actually lost connection and weren't able to uh, regain connection um, as we were on the night that we were recording. Uh, so we're we're starting up again one evening later. So uh, sorry sorry for that uh, inconvenience, but through the magic of podcasting, hopefully it should all uh, all, all be pretty uh, seamless when it all gets put together. So uh, you know, it's twenty twenty. We're supposed to have flying cars 
by this point. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I don't. So we're still struggling with uh, internet connections, but uh, such is life in in the Vale of Tears, um, which I think is what we were well, <laughs> what we were talking about. That's what we've been talking about, <laughs> right? Right. So this is this is bat. We're in, we're still in Babylon, no matter how you know how many gadgets. Nothing we have, says it's still and nothing says Babylon more than um, dropped internet connections. So. Exactly. That's exactly. pretty. I'm, I'm sure that was the background of a lot of the laments uh, in the Psalms and Old Testament was um, failure of internet. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, well, you know, I think I, if I recall, Stephen, you were you were sort of we were talking about being realists about um, you know this life uh, as really being a captivity in Babylon. I, I actually had some time to think about that there's sort of a, a, a dualism at work here because in a way, um, our life before our baptism was Babylon and through our baptism, we were birthed into the kingdom of God, um, the eternal kingdom. And we were delivered from baptism, brought back to that heavenly city, which is the Mm. church coming down out of heaven. Um, so there's one aspect in which, um, you know, life before Christ was Babylon and through baptism, we were brought into the kingdom of God. But there's another sense in which this entire mortal life in the flesh, in this corrupt dying flesh, we are in Babylon and we will ultimately enter into that eternal kingdom and our perfection um, in the next life. And um, being, being realistic about this, um, it's not depressing Um, you know, it's, we're not going through this life hand wringing and depression. Um, God is with us and the sweetness of the spirit is with us and the joy of the Lord is with us. And the saints were filled with joy. And, um, so it's not meant to be, you know, a big downer. Um, but, but it is meant to make us understand that what this life is about and that we've got to have courage. Uh, to face the life as as it is comes to us, um, and and we got to accept it on these terms, right. you know. And and if we don't, we're going to get resentful, and um, we're going to give up. You know, we're not going to be prepared. Christ said, you know, count the costs uh, before you go out and and fight the army, bef- the, the the battle before you build the tower. And I I think when he says count, he's not suggesting that um, we we decide whether or not we we're going to go fight the enemy or build the tower. It's right. not that. No, we don't have a choice about that. Right. It's not count the costs and decide whether or not you want to do it in the first place. It's, you're right. going to do it, so size it up. Prepare yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, get prepared and understand what you're getting yourself into. Right. Like, it's not like you really have a choice. Right. <laughs> you know. Uh, right. So we were talking about preparation. I mean, this we keep coming back to this theme of preparation, um, so, you know, in this, in this life, the nature of life, we're talking also about the nature of this season, which is one of preparation. So, um, can you just start kind of telling us about what, what the season looks like? Sure. How it works. Well, yeah. I, and, and I could, let me give just a little bit of sort of, um, historical, um, perspective too, on the development of Septuagesimatide. Um, as I think we already said, the West adopted this pre-Lenten season um, from the East, and we calculate our days of Lent a little bit differently. Um, but this season, as it was adopted in the West in the uh, in the sixth century, early sixth century, um, or maybe a little bit earlier than that, even it coincided with some 
some catastrophes in Rome, some public disasters that were going on. And so it it nicely coincided with a call to repentance and prayer and Mm. penitence um, for God's mercy and deliverance during that time. And the people were already fasting in this period. Um, It was a little bit informal. It wasn't prescribed um, exactly, but they were fasting sort of leading up into into their Lenten life. Um, before Easter. And then the the Pope, uh, the Bishop of Rome, made it an, an official pre-Lenten season. Um, and basically, that means there were prescribed readings for these three Sundays before Ash Wednesday. And um, there were masses written for this. The fast was instituted as a formal thing. Um, I'm sorry, strike strike that. Um, the, the fast begins officially at yeah, Lent. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll actually correct that in just a minute. But but the observance of this pre-Lenten time um, spread from Rome throughout um, the western part of the empire. And in, in about um, what, these what time again? In, what century are we talking well, about? Well, we have... We, we have we have record as early as four uh, five five forty one okay. in the council the council council of Orlean. Um, we have all the readings. These three pre Lenten Sundays are mentioned okay. in, in five forty one. So it was certainly in yep. existence, bef- you know, considerably before that. In six oh four, um, there's a station church, the the Church of Saint Lawrence, who is one of the favorite um, deacon martyrs of Rome. He's the one who was grilled on the griddle. Um, that great story. Uh, um, for our listeners, if they don't know, uh, we love St. Louis. He was put on a griddle and he had the presence of mind and the sarcastic uh, humor at the moment to say, you can turn me over. I'm done on this side. now." What a hero. Um, Absolute yeah. hero. <laughs> so he is. Uh, so there's a very early church. It's a station church. It's outside the wall uh, in Rome. And what we mean by station church is the, the Pope, uh, the Bishop of Rome would go and say mass at the station church on different feasts. So there are different churches, um, where they would say certain masks on certain feasts. So in 604, uh, we have, um, sermons, a sermon from St. Gregory, the great St. Gregory, uh, dialogus preached on Septuagesima, uh, hmm. Sunday, um, at the church of St. Lawrence outside the wall. And that is the station church, I believe to this day, uh, where, um, the Septuagesima is, is held. Um, and the same liturgical texts are used in 604 that we, that I'll be using right, tomorrow, right. uh, in tomorrow's mass. So and tonight, this is again, so this, we should make the point that, uh, tonight, this evening, we're picking back up recording on the, the eve of Septuagesima. So, uh, first, that's first right. Vespers, so this is Saturday night. night. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. And we just, I just got back from, from first Bessers and I'll, I'll share in just a little bit about what we did tonight. Um, that was, it was fantastic actually. But, um, as we've said, this season is not quite as rigorous as Lent. Um, the official fast begins on Ash Wednesday, but the people were already sort of voluntarily fasting yeah. during Septuagesima. And to this day, um, you know, people will sort of enter into a voluntary modified fast. Right. Um, and they sort of begin, it's sort of like doing the pre-race stretches, yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, so be, people are getting accustomed, getting ready for, for Lent. The liturgical color, there's several things that occur liturgically um, that, that indicate that we're entering into a new season. The, and in the West, the colors are much more regimented and prescribed than in the East. Um, there is an association with color and season and feast in the East, but it's not quite as rigidly prescribed. Yeah. 
um, in the West. It's quite rigid. Um, and uh, so we, enter, we, do, we, we will be in violet uh, tonight, violet or purple, uh, whichever you prefer to call. Um, and that began tonight and tomorrow. And that's the color of penitence, which is used in Advent and Lent. Um, we are, we use an organ in the Western church. It's been done for a very, very long time, but the organ is not played. So the organ is shut down beginning with Septuagesima tide. Hmm. Um, there's no flowers on the altar. So things are sort of stripped down, start to become a little bit more stark. Yep. Um, we sing the hymn of the angels, the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, uh, is normally done in, uh, in, in most masses on Sundays. Uh, this is now omitted from the mass, and for somebody who worships in the Western Rite, this is a big deal. You that, definitely know it. Yeah. When the Gloria is not sung. Yeah, you realize. Um, oh, wait, there's something missing here. Yeah, there's it's a big apparent, hole there, right? and very apparent. You feel it. Um, now there are some weekday feast saints, uh, feast masses of saints, and the Gloria is inserted there, but that's an exception. Um, in the office, uh, the Ambrosian hymn, that great Ambrosian yes, hymn, the Tadeum, it is now from, from tonight on, it is omitted, um, until Easter. Um, the deacon normally dismisses the faithful with the more solemn dismissal of Ite Misa Est, but instead he will switch now to bless the Lord and the people respond, thanks be to God. Um, also after the, after the, um, right before the gospel is read, um, there would be a, an alleluia or something, and that is replaced now by a tract. So the alleluia is not said um, after the, right before the gospel. The deacon and the subdeacon also in Lent, they shift from wearing their typical vestment, which is a, a dalmatic and a tunicle. Um, they, they wear a folded chasuble, which is a more sort of penitential sign. But in... Um, pre-Lent in Septuagesima side, they still wear the dalmatic and tunicle. So again, that's sort of a mark from going from less rigorous to more rigorous. Yeah. Uh, so the intensity of Lent is ramped up a little bit, even by the vestments that they wear. So there's a distinction between uh, Epiphany Tide or, you know, sort of where the color is green to Septuagesima, where the color right. turns violent, to Lent, where there's even greater... Uh, marks of of liturgical sort of signs that that this is a penitential season, right? And okay. when you live yeah. this life, you know, year after year, it it works on you. You know, it's it's um, you can see all it doesn't changes. even have to yeah. be yeah. It it just it doesn't even have to be didactically kind of expressed. It just it's there. Yep. Um, you know, there, obviously there's teaching about it, but you're experiencing it, right. and it. It works on you. The, the, the first um, prayer as we enter into the Mass for Septuagesima is taken from Psalm 18. We call it the introit, which is um, the entrance hymn originally um, in the early days was considered the entrance hymn. But it says, the sorrows of death came about me, the pains of hell got hold upon me. And in my tribulation, I made my prayer unto the Lord and he regarded me out of his holy temple. So again, there's sort of this lament uh, this recognition of um, fallen humanity. By the way, I think we we did not mention yet that the readings in the office for the first week are those of um, the, the fall of man from the very beginning in the book of Genesis and um, the introduction of corruption and mortality through mm. through the original sin of our for our parents. 
Um, the collect also the the collect is the first prayer that sort of summarizes the the essence or the theme of a mass. And the collect for Septuagesima is, um, O Lord, we beseech thee favorably to hear the prayers of thy people, that we who are justly punished for our offenses may be mercifully delivered by thy goodness for the glory of thy name. Mm. So again, it's a reference to the fall of man and the judgment of God against sin, um, but also um, a cry for mercy um, by the goodness of God, which will glorify his name. Wow. Um, so, so these are some of the things that happen. Now, there is one particular thing I wanted to bring up that sort of stands out maybe above all the rest um, that we do. It's, a, it's rubrical. I mean, it's according to the rubrics. It's an important thing that we do. And um, it's omitted from the liturgy from Septuagesima till Easter. Um, and I would say maybe it's the most iconographic and poignant mark of this season. Okay. And what it is, is it's we, we, we say farewell to Alleluia. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so we, we say this formal farewell to the Alleluia. This might seem a little odd to Eastern Rite Orthodox who are not familiar with this, this rubric or this custom because it, it's certainly unique to the Western liturgical tradition. They don't do this in the East. But in, in, the, in our tradition, the farewell to the Alleluia, and then the, there's some customs that came to be, a, uh, that surround it. This is really an eminent symbol of the season for us. Um, so we, this is not just a small thing. We take this very seriously, and it's a very moving and earnest uh, part of our observance of, of a holy Lent. So, um, and what yeah, this is, so, yeah, yeah. What, what does that mean exactly? The, the farewell to the Alleluia, like practically. Well, well, happens. basically, practically, what it means is we do not say Alleluia in any way from tonight, from after Vespers tonight, all the way through until the Paschal Vigil when it comes back. So it's it's not in any hymns, it's not in any liturgical texts, it's not in any prayers. Um, it's just not said. The Alleluia is completely. Uh, silenced. But what does that and, mean? Does that, um, does that mean you're not praising God? Does that mean you can't be? <laughs> oh, cer <laughs> cer certainly not. Certainly not. And, um, you know, we, it does not mean that. And in fact, that that is emphasized that we are obviously still praising God, but we are, we are, um, you know, aesthetically, aesthetically choosing not to um, use that heavenly word uh, to praise God and and using that as an opportunity to reflect on the sobriety of the season. I actually, you know, there's a passage that was written by Dom Geringer. Um, it's quite eloquent about this tradition, and um, I'll go ahead and read it. Sure. Uh, if it if it if it's too long, you, you know, you've always got the edit button. You can cut it down. <laughs> I'll just cut you off. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm sure. I'll show you. Yeah. I'll read it, and if, if if you think people will find it interesting, it's not too long, okay. but it's going to take a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, so he he begins, he says, Our Holy Mother, the Church, knows how necessary it is for her to rouse our hearts from their lethargy and give them an active tendency toward the things of God. On this day, the eve of Septuagesima, she uses a powerful means for infusing her own spirit into the minds of her children. She takes the song of heaven away from us. She forbids our further uttering that Alleluia, which is so dear to us as giving us a fellowship with the choir of angels who are forever repeating it. 
How is it that we poor mortals, sinners, and exiles on earth have dared to become so familiar with this hymn of a better land? It is true our Emmanuel, who established peace between God and men, brought it us from heaven on the glad night of his birth. And we have had the courage to repeat it after the angels, and still chant it with renewed enthusiasm when we reach our Easter. But to sing the Alleluia worthily, we must have our hearts set on the country whence it came. It is not a mere word, nor a profane, unmeaning melody. It is the song that recalls the land we are banished from. It is the sweet sigh of the soul longing to be at home. The word Alleluia signifies praise God, but it says much more than this, and it says it as no other word or words could. The church is not going to interrupt her giving praise to God during these nine weeks. She will replace this heaven-lent word by a formula also expresses expressive of praise. Praise be to thee, O Lord, King of eternal glory. But this is the language of earth, whereas Alleluia was sent us from heaven. Alleluia, says the devout Abbot Rupert, is like a stranger amidst our other words. Its mysterious beauty is though a drop of heaven's overflowing joy had fallen down on our earth. The patriarchs and prophets relished it, and then the Holy Ghost put it on the lips of the apostles from whom it flowed even to us. It signifies the eternal feast of the angels and saints, which consists in their endless praise of God and in ceaselessly singing their ever-new admiration of the beauty of the God on whose face they are to gaze for everlasting ages. This mortal life of ours can in no wise attain such bliss as this. But to know where it is to be found, and to have a foretaste of it by the happiness of hope, and to hunger and thirst for what we thus taste, this is the perfection of the saints here below. For this reason, the word Alleluia has not been translated. It has been left in its original Hebrew as a stranger to tell us that there is a joy in his native land which could not dwell in ours. He has come among us to signify rather than to express that joy. End quote. Wow. Well, I mean, yeah, it's powerful, isn't it? That's that's got that is the the most poetic sort of just expounding of a single word that I think I'm aware of. Um, that really makes you think yeah. about the word Alleluia, what it means, what, yeah. what it's yeah. what it's for. So, oh. yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and then it makes it makes what we did tonight, which I'm going to share in just a minute. Um, all the more poignant because I, I, I sent that out to our parish mm. and, and asked everybody to read it in preparation for for the ceremony mm. that we had tonight. But r- real quick, I just some people fun facts about the word Alleluia um, you might find interesting. Um, Saint Isidore of Seville, about six thirty six, he he talks about the fact that there was never any time was there an effort to translate this word into the vernacular because of the reverence that the church has for the word Alleluia in the original Hebrew that goes back to apostolic that. times. I love that. And um, Tertullian, Tertullian also says that, um, that 
people would insert alleluias throughout their prayers. Like it was people's favorite word. <laughs> um, St. Jerome, the great St. Jerome in about 420, he said farmers and craftsmen would sing the alleluia during their work. Um, and this is really cool. He talked about how it was the custom for mothers to teach their newborn babies or as soon as they began to speak to pronounce Alleluia before any other word. That was the first word they learned was Alleluia. Okay, well, if I ever have um, a kid, that's that's going to be my my course. I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah, that, it, it, I mean, after hearing that beautiful, um, that beautiful uh, passage. Yeah. Um, it also, it also was, um, it was thought of as being the, a song for oarsmen and navigators and boatsmen. Augustine says something. He says, let the Alleluia be our sweet rowing song, because those who were out in the boats used to sing oh. the Alleluia. And Apollinaris, uh, about 480, he talked about how the banks on the River Gaul resounded with the Alleluia song of the rowing uh, boatmen. And um, so again, this word is just, uh, it's, it's, it's a heavenly word that's come down to us. And of course, we know ultimately, at least on this side of heaven, um, this word bursts forth from our lips um, at the joy of Easter. Alleluia, the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. And Alleluia. in the Western tradition, this is quite you know, particularly poignant because we have been fasting from the word um, during this time. And um, well, I... This is... This is... Sorry, I'm sorry. This is, I mean, I'm just, I'm struck no, by how, I, just how, how weighty the word is and, and how just there, this is not done flippantly. This is not just a, a, an easy sort of, oh, we'll, we'll just strike one word that we have a vague association of praise with in order to emphasize a little bit of penitence in this season. Hallelujah. Is an important word um, in, in yeah. the Western tradition. It has been intentionally used in very important ways, and so to suppress it, to put it on the shelf, to cover it up, and to fast from it is—it's felt. I mean, it's—it's it's poignant. It, mm -hmm. There, there's this goes down to the soul of you know, the, the 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 very soul of the Western Christian. This is a serious thing. Liturgically speaking, yeah. spiritually speaking, I mean, emotionally, the, the the suppression, the burial of the Alleluia is a real. Yeah, and that's it's <laughs> it is, and it's a, it's an important it's important um, rubric to to us in this season, and it has a real impact and effect upon us. You know, there were um, there were customs um, that eventually grew up. Um, you know, in the medieval, early medieval and later medieval times um, of, of people, ways to say farewell uh -huh. to our beloved expression of heavenly praise. And, um, you know, as, 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 as I said a moment ago, it's not like we're not going to praise God for the next 61 days. We're just not going to use this particular and very exquisite word to do it. Right. Um, so... Um, here's, here's a farewell hymn. I'll read to you quickly, a brief one. Uh, this was from about the 800s um, in the liturgy uh, of Spain. And it says, Stay with us today, alleluia, and tomorrow thou shalt part. When the morning rises, thou shalt go thy way. Alleluia, alleluia. The mountains and hills shall rejoice. Alleluia, 
while they await thy glory. Thou goest, alleluia. May thy way be blessed until thou shalt return with joy. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. <laughs> so there were a lot of tracks, a lot of uh, sequence yes, hymns. That's yeah, what I was trying to think hymns. of. Uh, a lot of sequence hymns in Germany, in Spain, in Rome that were written to sort of uh, get our last few alleluias right. in, you know, um, on the on the eve before. So there was uh, some traditions and customs. Some of them were a little theatrical. Um, and, and when you might hear them at first, you think, oh, that's cute. But we actually did this tonight at St. Patrick's. It is um, not a strict liturgical thing. It is a quasi little ceremony, uh-huh, sure. um, but it was absolutely spectacular. Um, it was so good uh, to, to be there and do this. So what what we did was, um, and we call this the burial of the Alleluia. So we're going to say farewell to the Alleluia, but we're actually going to bury the Alleluia. Um, and then the Alleluia is going to get resurrected at the Paschal Vigil. Um, so what, what we do, and there's different ways of doing this, but we had a banner um, with beautiful calligraphy uh, sewed onto the banner with the word Alleluia. And at the end of Vespers tonight, the, we sang one of these famous, um, I think we sang the one from Spain. We sang, no, a French. We sang a French one, a sequence hymn, beautiful sequence hymn. And we lined up in procession, but the people who were doing the procession were all young boys. They were the choir boys. They weren't the clergy. Uh-huh. So again, this is sort of like a, a quasi-liturgical yeah, ceremony. Yeah. Um, but the altar servers and the choir boys lined up. We had a processional cross and we had, we had incense and we had holy water and they, and, and tapers, uh, you know, lighted candles and the whole church processed out into the churchyard while the choir sang and the boys were carrying, you know, this banner, the Alleluia. And we had dug a little hole out in the churchyard, real, real small, and we packed up the Alleluia banner and buried it in the hole. And they they sprinkled it with holy water and sensed it. Um, and these were like you know seven and eight year old boys, and they were in their cassocks and surpluses. It was fantastic. It's beautiful. Um, it was really really moving actually. And um, we buried. It wasn't like silly or no, kitschy, no. nothing like that. It was very, very moving. We were kind of all almost in tears. We went back to the sacristy and everybody's just like, that was so beautiful and, and sweet. Um, so, you know, we, we, we buried the Alleluia and um, I think everybody's going to remember that it was definitely a very poignant, meaningful way to sort of enter into this most holy mm. penitential season yes. in preparation yeah. for Easter. And then, of course, at the Paschal Vigil, right at the beginning of the Mass, there's this cry of Alleluia, the response between the clergy, the celebrant, oh and the people. Oh my gosh, when the Alleluia um, comes Alleluia back <laughs> on the Paschal yeah. Vigil. After, uh, after 61 days. Yeah, I, there's so, no, there's um, no, I mean, if anyone says that, you know, the, the, the liturgy is supposed to be all about, you know, sort of decorum, and, and if anyone, just dares to to presume that emotions don't have a place in the liturgy on Pascha night when when the lights come back on and when the Alleluia yeah. resurfaces. Oh my gosh! I mean, it's I it it is a holy, and when the veils are stripped off. When the we veils are you stripped know, we've off. We've been talking about this. No, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm sure we'll we, have we might have to have another to podcast that. about that. Yeah. But I mean, just to yeah. the experience of that is. I'm not speaking as 
someone with as much experience as you, but I've been through several of these seasons. I've I've seen and felt and heard the the power of the burial and then the the resurrection of the Alleluia, and it is fantastic. It really is. Yeah, I mean these, you know, east, west, all all of our liturgies. We're we're trying to express, you know, a complex, multitudinous layering of different aspects of our faith, and um, we understand that these are symbols and signs um, expressing uh, the mystery of our faith. And you know, our life is lived in a in a in a sort of a polarity of we have the joy of heaven, we have the joy of salvation, and yet we're still wrestling through, um, you know, the, the corruption of this world and uh, working out our salvation. And certainly that's true in, in all of our liturgical um, acts and, and expressions. So um, I don't, I don't think anyone would hopefully not confuse um, this symbol of bearing the Alleluia with, um, you know, a suggestion that we're somehow, we've been cut off from the heavenly life. Certainly, you know, the, the famous phrase uh, that we like to refer to Holy Lent is uh, it's a bright sadness, Mm -hmm. you know, so these, these two things can be true at once. And, you know, we practice ascesis, you know, which is a a buffeting of the body, um, penitential, but that doesn't mean that we don't also have the joy of God in our hearts at the same time. You know, these things are not mutually <laughs> exclusive right. in our experience. Right. Um, so yeah, certainly people should definitely understand that. Yes. Um, I think this is a, uh, light, like everything in the church, it is most fully experienced when you actually experience it. And it is a fantastic season built with multitudinous layers as you're saying of of meaning and signs and symbols and this season is just according to the nature of our life here but this season really really shines a spotlight on it and gives us a, a road to walk that helps us learn how to do it better throughout throughout the rest of the year throughout all of our lives so well it's it's nothing less than us identifying with Christ in his death so that we can enjoy the power of his resurrection and um so to to the to the measure that we embrace the cross we will enjoy the uh the power of the resurrection the joy of the resurrection so the cross we have to go through the cross <laughs> to get to Easter absolutely and that's what we're doing in this season uh, beautiful Well, thank you so much, Father Patrick, for joining me again, not just one night, but two nights it took to to make this recording. So I appreciate your perseverance and and dedication. It's my my pleasure completely. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, for for more information and resources regarding the season of Septuagesima, of Lent in the Western tradition of the church, you can visit www.orthodoxwest.com. Dot com. Uh, I hope everyone has a blessed Septuagesima season, a blessed Lent, and stay tuned for more podcasts and interesting info from Orthodox West. Thanks. God bless.